0: So I wasn't wasn't even going to share this with you guys. Uh, I'd seen this on the web, and we were talking about pre-show material. Uh, But the most interesting part about this new TCP bug is the fact that Netflix
1: discovered it. Yeah. I I wasn't really attuned to it, except for that part. That is kind of, I guess I'm just sort of getting exhausted on these. But it's sort of like a new version of uh, The Ping of Death.
2: Yeah, kind of. I mean, you get some misconfigured TCP packets sent your way, and in just the right case on an unpatched kernel, well, you might actually have a full-blown kernel panic. So those are always unfortunate. Uh, obviously, that can lead to a denial-of-service attack when all your boxes are crashed.
1: Yeah, and that's not great.
2: And I, I think the impact has been a bit lessened because most... Series boxes in production out there are behind various behind, types yeah. of load balancers or mm-hmm. other gateways. And many of those, This to be clear, this is not a protocol flaw. This is a flaw in Linux's implementation of the TCP stack. And FreeBSD is also affected. There's several other variants that aren't panics. They're just slowdowns.
1: Did you guys catch its name? Sack Panic. <laughs> Sack Panic. <laughs> I like it. This is Linux Unplugged, episode 306 for June 18th, 2019. Hello there, and welcome to Linux Unplugged, your weekly Linux talk show that's getting its well way into the 300s. feels weird, Wes. It sure does. feels weird. Like, this show can't be 300 episodes long. We're just hanging out. We must be doing something right. (laughs) I don't know about that. Or very, very wrong. We're just very persistent. We're just very persistent. Well, coming up on this week's episode, we have some community news, but uh, we decided to do something you should never do this week. We decided to live swap out a FreeNAS system to Fedora, which we're calling From FreeNAS to Fedora, our journey of live swapping a production system with a failed disk. We went out into the Jupiter Broadcasting server room, brought our recording equipment, and documented our journey.
2: Not only that, we... Uh...
1: We changed the whole darn network here at the studio. Yeah, so yeah. <laughs> it's amazing work here at all. Yeah, we really did. We ripped out the whole network, <laughs> re-IP' everything, uh, and still managed to put a show together. Well, we, we we actually had a lot of fun doing it. We'll tell you about that in a little bit. But before we go any further, I gotta say hello to Cheesy. Hey Cheese. Hey, what's going on? Oh, you know, doing a podcast, hanging out. Yeah, you guys have been hard at work with that stuff for the last couple of days too. Mm, yep. We got everything back up online just in time to say Time-appropriate greetings, Virtual Lug. Hello, Mumble Room.
3: Good morning. Good morning. Hello. Hello, morning. hello, hello.
1: hello. hello. hello Brent and Bruce and Byte and Neil and Minimech and Sean and TechMav. It's nice to have you all there as we go along. And we start out with some community news and the big item that caught my attention. There's many things we could talk about. This has been another one of those weeks where it's sort of like what we didn't put in the show is almost as important as what we put in the show. Uh, And I just thought, let's start with talking about initial benchmarks of Microsoft's new WSL2. We're already starting to see it ship for the people that are subscribed to, like, the Insider's Build. If you really want to play with it. Yeah. And under some benchmarks, this is, of course, according to Michael Labrador over at Pharonix, He's been testing the subsystem, and in not all instances is it actually faster. It is in some, like with I.O. Yeah, right. So it has improved
2: I.O., and that was one of the big justifications for this whole re-architecture of the subsystem. It just just wasn't cutting it before. But unfortunately, in some other areas, we're not so lucky.
1: Yeah, looking at the benchmarks here, there is uh, certain kinds of workloads where it's significantly even slower than WSL1, and uh, obviously slower than bare metal. Uh, He compared it to 1804 bare metal and clear Linux bare metal. And all the benchmarks, as he always has, are linked over on his site if you want to check them out. Um, I think it just means it's not uh, the Linux killer that everybody worries about. It's just a practical tool to get your work done. And and there are already some interesting use cases for it. Docker just posted a massive write-up that we read so you don't have to. And they write, Microsoft gave us an early build of the WSL2 so that we could evaluate the technology and see how it fit with our product. And then we could give them our feedback about what's missing or even broken. We started prototyping different approaches, and we're now ready to share a little bit about what's coming in the next few months. Ducker Desktop Future.
2: (laughs) Yeah, that's the title of this section. Okay, so before they had a Hyper-V based VM, and that's going to be replaced by what they're calling a WSL2 integration package. Which is still
1: based on Hyper-V VM, but it's like a different, more optimized...
2: New version. Yeah, exactly. So it provides all the same features as the current Docker desktop VM. So you can do Kubernetes, you can do proxy configuration, you can access the Docker daemon from Windows and all sorts of bind mounts, you know, all the usual Docker sort of stuff. In the past, that was it. You couldn't really mess with the underlying VM. You couldn't run additional stuff in the Linux OS that was running inside of it. With the WSL2 integration, you'll still experience all the niceties you have from Windows, But you can run additional Linux programs inside, and they can also talk to Docker. So you can have the same Docker API running from a daemon,
1: running on a Hyper-V VM, using WSL2, all unified together. And they write, and a good example, a use case for this is, a lot of your scripts that you've written on the Linux side can just now be used, and they can... Or on the Windows side can be used to manage the Linux boxes, vice versa.
2: They also have a nice example of using uh, Visual Studio Code with that with that remote connector setup. So you can go remote into WSL2 and then use the Docker daemon inside, build Docker containers, run them, and then still manage it all from Windows.
1: Yeah, that's nice and tidy for those uh, Windows developers that never want to be bothered with dirtying themselves, actually installing real Linux. Now they can use... The days of like having to manually configure VirtualBox with
2: with NFS shares over the the no ne- oh, yeah. no
1: gross now they'll just use a Visual Studio Code remote to WSL, uh, and then package all up in a Docker container. <clears throat> good Microsoft to go. loves Linux, don't you know? Good, good to go, good to go. Never had to actually touch real Linux at all. That's crazy.
0: It hurts so much.
1: <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. It's it's all about making Linux a bit of a runtime. I'm all for it. So while we're talking about uh, Docker containers and universally running applications, just a quick update from our friends at Canonical that work on Snaps. First of all, they have new distro-branded landing pages, so that way if you're on Mint or you're on Arch or Fedora, whatever it might be, they'll now have specific instructions on how to get up and going with some copy pasta if you choose, which looks pretty nice, pretty simple. I thought it was a little... It's a little strange to me that they the way they sort of branched
2: it out per package, you know? Yeah. Because most of the time, there's not that much different, right? You kind of, once you've got everything bootstrapped. Now, I get it when you want to land, like maybe you're trying to install your first snap, and so everything's there, right there on that page for the application that brought you there. But it just kind of felt weird. It's like, well, I already installed it. Like, don't I just use the snap command line wherever I am?
1: Yeah. Yeah, once you've got that part done. Yeah, you're right. We'll have to ask maybe there's somebody who might know. Maybe we'll have to ask him. Now, while we're talking about snaps, this is there's another there's another part to the story that I think is a good heads up for those of you that are Ubuntu desktop users in 19.10 right now in testing, they're calling for some feedback on shipping the Chromium browser as a snap, the transitioning from a deb to a snap for the browser. And uh, they're working on migrating your profile, uh, the Chrome driver stuff, so that way they can have video acceleration. There's several elements to this that need to be banged on by end users, including just general desktop browser integration.
2: Sounds great, though. I mean, I I think it's a good fit. You think so? I mean, I already run, like when I run Firefox, I install it manually under under my home bin directory, right? Like Browsers move fast. Yeah, Plus, yeah. sandboxing is not a bad idea. Browser
1: is a dangerous environment. But Chrome already has its own sandboxing. It does. But you're right. I do agree that the browser is a good candidate for software that you can update sort of independently from the operating system. And when you look at like an LTS, it makes even more sense potentially. And they don't have that many capabilities,
2: right? Like they don't need to reach super far into your file system and go crazy places. So I think it would, mesh well with the abilities that snapd already has to give access when needed
1: here's what we gotta do you know what we gotta do we gotta phone a friend uh <laughs> like millionaire style right now we'll call up a friend who might know about snap packages and we'll ask wes's question so uh Popey, are you there oh hello hi uh go ahead wes you have 20 seconds
2: <laughs> what was the motivation between uh, the structure of the distro-specific pages on, on the Snap? Not one per OS at the top level, but for, for every package.
4: Oh, very good. You got it. <laughs> um, because the goal is that a normal person who's looking to install Spotify doesn't want to know lots of stuff. They want to know, how do I get Spotify on the distro that I'm on? And the focus for those pages is tell them exactly what they need to know to get that application on the distro that they've chosen and nothing more. Maybe a little bit extra if they scroll down the bottom. But the distro-specific stuff is is really catering to those people who, who like to follow blog posts that say I, how to do this one thing And it tells them how to do that one thing, and then they get out of
1: there. It's all self-contained. So the first experience they land on, they got everything. That makes sense. Uh, Mr. Wimpress, nice to see you here this evening. Hello, sir. Good evening. Hi, Wimpy. How are you? Uh, Very well. Uh, surprisingly, still jet-lagged. But other than that, fine. I'm not surprised. With as much traveling as you've done, it's got to catch up rec- it's g- Eventually, it's going to catch up to you, right? Yeah, th- this is the week it catches up, apparently. <laughs> yeah. So, the Atari VCS is going on sale for pre-order right now for $250. It's going to be a AMD Ryzen R1000 SoC design. And uh, this is coming out of details at uh, E3 this week. What do we think, Wimpy? Are you... Uh, Skeptical of this box or is it uh or is it not a waste of my, my Indiegogo money? <laughs> uh I'm very skeptical. I'm sorry you've wasted your money. You think so? I'm I'm kind of excited it's gonna be a Ryzen box because I'm such a fanboy these days. Yeah,
5: I'm how how is this past you yet? Is it on time or is it delayed?
1: Uh it is delayed. Yes. It was delayed. Uh they delayed it a little bit ago, uh, because they said they're gonna to move to the AMD A1 CPU and a Ryzen processor. Uh and uh so that, that that added delay to the process. But that seems like it might be worth it.
5: Yeah, I don't know. It seems like a lot of money for what it is.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, $250 is not bad for the base price, but to get something good that'll do 4K or something like that, you start getting close to $800. Plus
5: you get the look of the thing.
1: Ooh, black walnut. Yeah, that's true. It has got that nice retro look. I do kind of like it. Well, I just wanted to give everybody an update that they are now taking pre-orders and they're talking about it at E3 and they're saying... <clears throat> Well, they're not really saying specifically when it's going to ship, but it looks like it will be this year. If they're taking pre-orders, does that mean they're fulfilling
5: backers um pledges at the moment? That's
1: a great question, Wimpy. That's a great Bonzi. question. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow.
5: Have they shown
1: any footage of any of the games on the console yet? Uh there may be some for me 3. I haven't really gone Spelunking. Uh Poppy, I'm curious, do you if you're going to bet on one? Uh, the Librem 5 or the Atari VCS. You had to pick one. Which one would you put your money on right now? Oh, man. Atari
5: VCS.
1: Why would you do
4: that to me? Oh, <laughs> I. Well, so the price point of the Atari VCS is not remotely attractive to me. I think I could probably go and dig in the deserts of California and find all the necessary Atari VCS cartridges I want to for less than $250. <laughs> but...
1: I'd say the Atari VCS. All right. <laughs> what about US? I got to agree. I mean. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, obviously, I've, I've put my money on the VCS. It just so. seems like an easier
2: target to hit. You know? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Plus, you can load other OSs on there, including they even say Windows now. And, um, you know, if I could put Cody on there, uh, it's only a little bit more than I paid for the NVIDIA Shield. So it's not great. We'll see. Do you still use your NVIDIA Shield? The heck out of it. Yeah, I have two of them. Still use them every, every day. No, oh, I have three of them. Have you hooked up Steam? I have done um, the GeForce streaming, but I have not done any stream, uh, Steam streaming. What's that like? So
5: this weekend, because I've, uh, I've only ever played the Android games, because that's all my daughter's been interested mm. in. But I was going to go back and relook at GeForce now. Yeah. And then I noticed that a bunch of the games you see in there all have Steam written underneath. And the very first time you click on that, it stands up a Steam on Windows install on their grid computing platform, and you sign in with your Steam credentials, and it then installs the game that you've just selected, and (laughs) you run that over uh, the shield. So that has become my new most favorite thing. That's incredible. And how would you say the performance and latency and responsiveness and all that is? Well, I'm fortunate in that I've got a reasonable amount of bandwidth, Mm. and I've always been impressed by the lack of apparent latency that exists on the Shield over that whole, you know, GeForce Now streaming solution. So, for me, it's great. I I mean, the 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 screen I have in the front room is very old, so it's a 720p screen, so it's not, you know, very high resolution. Uh, and for that resolution, um, it's fantastic. Um, hmm. You know, it's a lot of fun. That is, I'll have to. i have to look into that. That sounds really neat. Are you streaming that over wired or wireless connection? Um, W- wired. So the in the front room, that's got a, a direct line to the router, which is in the same room, and then that goes out over the fiber. Mm, good
1: setup. Yeah, I have the one in the uh, studio living room wired, too, for that very reason. Who needs reason.
5: Stadia when you've already got that set up? No Jeez. kidding. No kidding. i pre-ordered Stadia as well, though. Yeah, oh. did you did you do the founders? Yep.
1: Yeah. I did it as well because... Um, first I want to be able to talk about it here on the show, number one. But number two right. is it could give me the ability to run a fully open source stack and have gaming. All Intel graphics, for example, but still have right? gaming. Yeah, absolutely. And I've, if that makes my workstation more stable, I'd actually pay a monthly fee for that.
5: Yeah, I've I've been impressed with what, you know, The Shield has been able to offer me. And I, I was interested to see, well, what can Google do in this space? I'm not, I'm not buying into the platform necessarily, but I... Well, the only way I'll know for sure is by finding out, and so mm-hmm. uh, I've pre-ordered, and I should be looking forward to trying it out later in the year.
1: Yeah, if it sucks, I'll say it. so. You know, I don't have any absolutely. I don't have any yeah, reason to, to it. Nope. Yeah, no, I'm just gonna try it out. And it does seem like if anybody would have the technological background and infrastructure to pull this on, this off, it would probably be Google. They've got the scale, and um, they've got uh, motivation too. So let's talk about something that. I'd say it was probably the number one submitted, quote-unquote, story to the show this week. People are like, hey, did you see this, Chris? Chris, And I appreciate that. I actually kind of like to know what people are tracking. Um, And this was Linus Tech Tips' video on the System76 Thalia, which they titled, A Really Weird PC, the System76 Thalia Review. It is currently, as we record this episode, trending at, at number 44 on all of YouTube. Whoa! It has... Over a million views. Wow. That's a big deal. That, uh, that sort of makes Emma's weight uh, in customs when she was oh, hand-delivering no, this.
2: quite a journey Yeah, for she her. told
1: that story on the show if you've missed it. She's been out. I th- um, rumor has it she got hurt. Oh, yeah, We'll have to talk to her about that when she comes he back. We miss soon, you, Emma. Emma. We, we miss do. You. Now let's talk about their review. So Linus Tech Tips, uh, we'll link to the entire video. It's an 11 minute video. We're just gonna play a couple of clips for you. Uh, And it starts uh, with the unboxing as uh, many YouTube videos do.
3: So let's take a closer look at the box. Once you get it out of the shockingly nerdy packaging, the most striking features of the Thelio are its wood green finish and its tantalizing silver power button and accompanying white LED ring. There's no sign of any front IO to disrupt the clean design language they've gone with, which means it's beautiful, but also means unfortunately that we're stuck with what we've got on the rear. And back here is interesting. So more of that clean at any cost approach. The IO is cut directly out of the chassis. That means no simple motherboard upgrade. Although again, it does make for an uninterrupted premium look that really screams Apple. Even though when we pop the hood with these thumb screws, we can see that this is clearly a standard PC motherboard on the inside.
1: That power button is very legit. It's just great. Yeah, I, mean, I want to push it right now. I have a fun story. So when we went and toured the factory, I uh, I didn't say anything, and nobody prompted me. I just walked up and I started pushing the, the power button of the demo unit that was unplugged. So it was you know, I wasn't hurting it. And I just had this, I made this very satisfying, like, nice. And Carl, the, you know, the CEO, he was listening. He wa- he was, he was perched, wanted oh, yeah. to see my reaction because that power button is a particular point of pride for them. And so I like that they honed in on that. They do mention that the back plate is fixed, although I think a motivated person can probably cut it open. Um, but that's, you know, overall, like, it starts, like, kind of positive. You're like, wow, this is, this is pretty balanced yeah. so far.
3: As a non-Linux user, I want to poke around Pop-OS a little bit.
1: Oh, now here we go to Pop-OS. How are they gonna do this?
3: you first boot, it is super easy to encrypt your data. Just enter a password and reboot. That is pretty neat. Then when you come back, you're given the opportunity to set up your online accounts for integration into the OS, including access to your Google Drive cloud storage right in the file manager. Now we've actually seen Pop! OS before in our gaming on Linux update video.
1: And they continue, and then we're gonna talk a little more about Pop! OS, but they continue.
3: One of its major departures from its parent, Ubuntu, is Pop! Shop, a ridiculously easy to use app store. So it's actually ported over from elementary OS, but with one key value add. System76 curates their own packages, so if you ever need something basic, like Steam for gaming, or the latest NVIDIA drivers, it's just a click away. Actually, for your graphics drivers, it's easier than updating them on Windows.
1: Hmm. Now, a couple of things strike me about this video, because there's even more talking about Pop! OS, is, um... Pop OS isn't going anywhere. It's not going away. No. It's here now for the long haul. And I'm curious to hear what uh, your reaction, Poppy, that is to that comparison of the parent operating system. I believe as they put it, right, the parent project or something like that. What's your reaction? Um, I don't know what to say.
4: Uh, I mean, every derivative of Ubuntu, which Pop OS is, has something that stands themselves apart from. Ubuntu. otherwise there will be no point installing it right and so their usp for pop os is the design language they've used on the desktop and simplicity of installing applications and we can learn from that and certainly you'll have noticed very recently we've talked about how it will be integrating the uh NVIDIA driver installer directly during the install. So we've certainly learned that that's a thing people really, really want, and we should probably do that. So, Mm. you know, we've learned something there. That's
1: great. Wimby, when I heard that, uh, when they were talking specifically about the Pop Shop, the thing that crossed my mind is, I wonder what their reaction would be to something like the software boutique that uh, Ubuntu Mate has that comes up and has an extensive list of curated software. Um, What are your thoughts when you hear that? Is that? It seems like you guys really hit on something pretty important to users a while ago now yeah i i'm i'm really proud
5: of what we did with um with the software boutique i think we switch things up a little bit but i'm not sure what someone like linux tech tips would make of that because they're kind of accustomed to it right if you uh, if you go into any of the stores you have a full catalog of software in front of you you know that's that's not been a problem in recent years you know you've got the windows store you've got the macOS store you've got the equivalents on on mobile it's novel to us on linux because we didn't used to have that ease of installation and we do now um so i don't know how much that would resonate really
1: Mm, okay fair enough actually good point I suppose it is sort of become um, just expected. You'd notice it more if it wasn't there. Yeah, maybe. I still really appreciate it. They did touch on the uh, open nature of the hardware as well.
3: The case and all of its accompanying bits and pieces, open source, just like the operating system. So there's literally a GitHub page with the CAD files for everything that you see here and for its bigger brothers, the Thelio Major and Thelio Massive.
1: But what impresses me overall about their entire coverage is, again, it's it's really well shot, it's really well written, you should watch the entire video, but they, they seem fairly balanced. They also point out, you know, the entire thing is an open source.
3: Now, that's not to say that every component in the system is open source. The motherboard, CPU, RAM, video card, storage devices, and power supply are all proprietary in design with the IP owned by the individual companies that made them.
1: As it is. I mean, that's just that's just a, how it works. Yeah, yeah. You know, System 76 will open a source as much as they can. Um, and they touched on something that we've been trying to figure out internally. Uh, because uh, Wes's co-host on Coda Radio, Michael Dominic, picked up a Thaleo station And was unable to use it for podcasting because of fan noise. We noticed it right away. He's been experimenting with, and they may have come on to something at Linus Tech Tips.
3: What we can also see in here is they've done a pretty bang-up job with the cable management, helped significantly by the generous real estate provided under the main fascia, which doesn't attempt to seal the computer so much as it conceals. There is a bit of concern from our end about dust accumulation through the side panels and the potential for noise to sneak out from under the chassis using the air gap as an echo chamber. Unfortunately, sure enough, it does get a little loud when the fans are running full tilt, and it's not just whooshing air noise, something that we generally don't complain about. Rather, it's a kind of droning whine that's a little bit harder to tune out. Honestly, I think a Noctua or a Be Quiet fan swap would help tremendously here.
1: That's a particularly challenging problem, though, if that is just down to the case design, if it's kind of making sound channels on the side, because it's such a gorgeous case. It's going to take them a while to iterate on that. Um, So that could be why they've struggled to have like a super great response to the fan noise issue, in my opinion. That's, of course, just my opinion.
2: And yeah, it is so pretty. It'd be such a shame to have to go stick it in the closet somewhere and not get to admire it on your desk.
1: Yeah. And so they also get to the price. Because, you know, there's, you, could, you could build yourself a cheaper system, or you could go buy a mass-produced system that's cheaper. And I think they did a decent job on honing in on what kind of makes them special.
3: While the operating system itself may be free, System76 does have paid staff that actively develop their OS. And that's to say nothing of the user support commitments that come along with that. Perhaps most crucially though, the Thelio chassis manufacturer and final assembly are both done in Colorado by a team that's about our size. So no mass production. System76 says they want to improve this situation in the future, but for now, it means that the costs add up really quickly.
1: The team, this is the team that's about our size, uh, which is kind of a, that's poignant. And then last but not least, they wrap it up.
3: You're paying for the case, US manufacturer, operating system development, and support from a small team of enthusiasts. Now, whether the design and concept of a well-integrated Linux desktop is enough to make you pay the extra, that's a choice I'll leave to you. But overall, we think it's really cool and a huge step in the right direction. It's pretty
1: good coverage for System76. And it's good coverage for Pop! OS, too. So we... uh... We have yet ourselves another major desktop container. I mean, they'll get there. They're not there yet, but they're going to get there.
2: It does make me feel a little bit better about uh, Mike's situation because he was having a heck of a time trying to fix it. It's nice to know you know, it, it's a, unfortunately a common yeah. problem.
1: Maybe run it with the case off. No. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> good for them. But weren't they also raving about Pop! OS in one of their videos just recently where they're, where
0: they're talking about gaming and stuff?
1: Yeah, it's a lot of coverage for Pop! OS. Um, and I... I I appreciate it. Uh, I think I initially was very, very uh, critical of Pop! OS. Um, I still, I would love, what I would love is if Pop! OS was just a series of scripts or repositories that you would add to a vanilla install of Ubuntu that would make it pop and that would add a couple of things or whatever. I, uh, I, I feel like we already have too many distros, but of course, you know what, I'm an old fart. So of course I feel like that because I've seen in my time, I've seen so many distros come and go. However, there is apparently um, a pretty in, uh, an interested market in this distribution, and I give them credit for cultivating that and for adding some value to the OS, like you hear people constantly talk about the installer, the encryption, the pop store, the theme. These are all things that matter, and uh, credit to System 76 for nailing those things. And truth be told, they're just getting started, really. So I feel, even though I started fairly critical of the distribution, and I still don't really see myself ready anytime soon, but I could I could see myself in the future if I went back to GNOME. I'd probably give it a try. It is interesting to see them actually, you know, I think
2: there was some wonder about how far they were going to take this. Is Was it going to just be sort of glorified, a few scripts on top, a, a custom theme? But it seems like, you know, as, as they've had time to develop it more out, there's they're actively working on it. So it, it will be a long time project. We're going to see more updates and they're going to continue to ship it.
1: She was stuck all day, Emma, in customs trying to get that machine to them. She, she just hand hours. delivered that, that machine. Um, and then just had to like walk away and hope that the review went well, you know? And, uh, that was weeks ago. That was back during Linux Fest that she did that. She ran up during Linux Fest and did that. And now here we are quite a while later. And that just got posted. That kind of shows you their, their time window there. But, um, that's a lot of weeks of her sitting around wondering, was it worth it? <laughs> <laughs> or or did I just screw up? Uh, and I think it was. I, I think mean, it was, yeah. It's number 44 on all of YouTube right now. That's a significant right. thing. A tiny little Linux shop. Yeah. I hope, they, I hope they get some sales out of it. Absolutely. All right. You know what we need to do? We got to do that housekeeping. Clean we gotta, it up in here. Yeah, we got to clean up a little bit. There's a few things to touch on this week. First of all, first of all, I should mention... We don't say this often enough, but Linux Academy is hiring for remote positions right now, including a Linux training architect, a machine learning training architect, a Python development training architect, but also an Angular developer, a full-stack Node.js developer, and Ruby on Rails developers, multiple Ruby on Rails developers. Those are full-time remote positions, full benefits, everything. There's also a position open in the lab platform. There's a few things happening there that are pretty interesting. So if you haven't gone to linuxacademy.com slash careers in a while, I really suggest you do it because there is some great positions open right now. And I want to pass that along to you because if you're in our audience, you kind of have like a leg up in the process. If you tell them I heard about it on Linux Unplugged, that's going to probably move you to the top of the stack. Whoa! Yeah, that's a big deal because that means you're you're actually interested in this stuff. I want to also mention the Friday stream this week. We played Who Wants to be a Millionaire? It was Wes versus Ange. I don't want to give it away, but it was tense. She's a, she's a tough competition right there. <laughs> tough competition. FridayStream.com slash 7. It's a really good one. That was a really fun one. And then last but not least here in the old housekeeping, we have a big batch of study group videos that just got posted. In the show notes, I have a link to the playlist on YouTube. This is Linux Permissions 101. I think it's... um. Uh, it is seven videos, I think, or six videos. Yeah, we've got it
2: down to just sort of bite-sized components you can handle, and it's it's really everything you've ever wanted to know yep. about Linux permissions. So nice.
1: Starts at the very basics, and then works its way up, and then by the end, you're like, you're doing like really cool stuff with ACLs and with U uh, and set UIDs, and it's a good series of videos. Six parts, each is consumable, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Just something we do to give back. We. Uh, we have a lot of great opportunities. We talk not only with training architects at Linux Academy, but Elle is a networking machine. Oh, yeah. And she goes out to events all the time, and she meets people who are great presenters who want to share their knowledge with our community. their listeners often. And so that's where a lot of this has come from, is people that Elle has met. She's our ambassador. Yeah. She goes down, connects with these people, and then brings them on to do a seminar or a webinar, really. And then we release it for free, because we're all about it. We're all about it. So check that out. We'll have a link, linuxunplug.com/ slash, what is this, 306? 306. Linuxunplug.com/306 slash 306. All right, Mr. Payne, that. Abbreviated housekeeping this week. So we're going to talk about something you should never do. Don't do it. We just wanted to have something that was more familiar to us. We had a problem to solve, and truthfully, we felt a little inadequate with the BSD. And we had work to get done. So Wes and I headed out to the Jupiter Broadcasting server room. We're out here in the studio server room, a.k.a. the garage, to do something that you should never do. Don't do what we're about to do. We're going to take our perfectly functional, totally fine, FreeNAS server, and we're going to rip out the FreeNAS part and put Fedora 30 server in. Yeah, you heard that right.
2: Yeah. Fedora 30.
1: Then we're going to try to import the ZFS pools that Alan created under FreeNAS, into fedora after we get the zfs support installed i know this sounds ridiculous non-standard maybe there's a couple of motivating factors if you will number one this is a killer super micro server with two six six-core xeon processors and 64 gigs of ram and it's just sitting here doing nothing but free NAS.
2: right right now it's just storage and i mean that's great and arguably probably the way you should do it yeah we just why are we going to let the server go to it's waste? Just
1: if you're using that much power and you know, you've know you got to make it all this noise, let's put it to work. So we we also, there is one other consideration. We've also run into an issue where a couple of times we needed to do some repairs and Wes and I are just not free BSD guys. Surprise, surprise. We're Linux guys. And so we have a disk issue. We need to swap out a disk and get a new disk online and... Quite frankly, we're just more comfortable with the Linux command line. And I think this is actually kind of an important thing. When you put something in production, you need to know how to use it. (laughs) Not maybe be so dependent on, say, Alan Jude. (laughs) All right, we're rebooting. We've just maybe completed installation. Yeah, you're going to pop out the thumb drive. So we use the Fedora server um, image, which is pretty nice. Network install. Yeah, the net install server image. So it pulls down the packages from the repository and gives you some options in fact, it might be the way I install Fedora from now on. I mean, honestly, what that took all of fifteen minutes once we got it it's set a, up and going. It was a tiny image, well, six hundred megabytes, and then you can choose you could choose all of the desktops if you want, from Zubuntu to Cinnamon, and um, or just the minimal installs. It gives you an option, and then it's off to the races. So we'll boot up, and then I think mission one is make sure our Fedora install is sane, and then get ZFS support installed,
2: and, and then we, we got to go it. see about importing this yeah. pool.
1: All right. Well, it's our first boot. We'll be back in a moment. I don't know why, but I just haven't used a net install version of a distro ISO in like 10 years. I mean, it just feels like it's been forever. I'm That's the only way I'm doing it from now on. Seriously. Like, it was so great. First of all, way quicker to download. Oh, yeah. Very nice. And... Anaconda has this screen that you don't normally see when you get like the live desktop version or when you get a specific spin, you don't see this screen that comes up. And the screen that comes up is the choice you can install any of the spins of the desktops right there from Anaconda. So you can use this as a base ISO for, in, for a Fedora server, for a Fedora desktop. Yeah, I think we were both pretty impressed. It, it was a surprisingly smooth installation. I, I was... I was <laughs> and I'm not normally an Anaconda fan. No, and I, I, I'm normally not impressed by Grub. I was impressed at Grub. So Grub just came up on the first boot. And one of the things I immediately noticed is we're already on kernel 5.1, which does confirm that the net install pulls down the latest packages. That's all Hot, nice. fresh Linux. Yeah. And um, one of the sort of interesting little side anecdotes about this setup is we're connected to, (laughs) it's kind of a rickety setup, the keyboard is a old Mac mechanical keyboard because like it's just the only one I had laying around that I'm not using. It's actually not that bad. No, it's not. Certainly
2: better than modern Mac keyboards. It's just, yeah,
1: it's just the control and alt and stuff is a little different. Uh, And then it's connected to the very first LCD screen I ever bought back in like 2000, 2001, (laughs) which I've just held on to all this time. But there we are. And look at that, it does say web console, so this does... Cockpit is already up and running. All right, I'm going to give it a login. You ready? All right. Yeah, there we go. We're in. All right, well, let's root around and... uh... Oh, look at all them disks. So it does see the disks. Yep, okay. Yeah, we're off to the races. Good. So now what we need to do is we need to get kernel development packages installed, and then we have to get the ZFS on Linux official GPG key installed, and their repository installed, and then we can get this going. So... Why don't we take a few minutes? We'll do that, and then we'll come back. I wasn't sure. Like, would it be in this weird, funky state because we had a bad disk? I, I was, I was sort of like, okay, great, yeah, we got Fedora installed. Great, yeah, I can see the, it can physically see the hard drives. Who cares? We've got to get ZFS working. Well, it turns out we'll have links in the show notes. That's pretty easy to do. The ZFS on Linux upstream project um, makes it all possible by putting a repo up, by putting keys up, and then by putting documentation up on how to do it. No time at all. Yeah, it was really, it was one of the fastest parts of the whole setup was actually getting ZFS working on Fedora. It was completely painless. But I wanted to know if we were going to actually be able to import that pool since it was created with an entirely different operating system using a entirely different fork, or at least much older fork of ZFS. And of course, we had that degraded disk as well. So or that that dead disk, we had a degraded pool as well. We just got done installing all of the ZFS packages from the ZFS on Linux project. You've done the import command. How has it gone? What's happened?
2: We've got our data. Now, there is one issue we're going to have to solve right off the bat, and that's setting the, the mount point, because mm-hmm. it's defaulting to just just the name of the pool right under the root directory. Right. Previously, it had been under mount. Right. So we're going to have to tweak that a little bit as we set up the rest of the stuff, get things like NFS or SMB set up. But otherwise, I mean, it imported with
1: no errors. That's pretty great. So we went from a up-to-date FreeNAS install and replaced that with Fedora 30 server, installed the ZFS modules, and we're just picking right up where we left off.
2: One command in, here we are.
1: And I would imagine that, I don't know for sure, but I would figure that Fedora 30 could likely be using a newer version of zfs since we just got the repository from the project directly i bet you're right so it's and it's still fine it still worked well we'll solve that mount mount issue and then um it's just a matter of standing up all the services again so there was um i guess a, a polite way to say this is a unique heritage of this free nas box you have to appreciate some some background before we continue here um, bless his soul, Alan Jude was out for Linux Fest Northwest and, like a Canadian gentleman, went out there and completely set up this killer box. It's a, it's got two Intel Xeons w- that are six cores each that supports all of the uh, virtualization stuff that you'd want. And then it's got, What, 13 disks in it, maybe? Yeah, I think so. Something like that. A a mix of different sizes, uh, probably the smallest being 6 terabytes. And then it has 64 gigabytes of RAM, some contributed by Allen, some contributed by a TechSnap listener. And it's just this monster of a system we're not doing anything with. And I looked at this and I thought, gosh, if this was running Linux, I would be more comfortable with actually deploying containers on this thing and running other pieces of software on this. But when Alan set it up, he had set it up really to only ever be a back-end storage box with a fairly complicated ZFS layout. As you would imagine, he sub-volumed everything, and there's also kind of a funky like swap partition that went across all the disks for the free NAS itself. So there's like some weird space allocated to that, and then we had this mount issue.
2: Yeah, I mean, we just had to get it configured. And FreeNAS had a sort of non standard setup, and it had been a mix of Alan administering things on the FreeBSD command line and some of the FreeNAS defaults, especially because this had actually been a regular FreeNAS from IX Systems that we then ported over to this new box. So right. it was something of a, a hybrid
1: monster. Yeah, it had gone, gone from a FreeNAS Mini into a super, super micro chassis, which then Alan reconfigured it from there. And then we from there have converted it into a Fedora box. But in the process, we sort of redid some things to sort of align to how we kind of do things now, including um, how we sort of set up the way the disk is set up for the OS and whatnot.
2: So we had to do some stuff, tweak tweak some of the mount point settings and play with that.
1: There was also one other gotcha that we ran into that took us a little bit to figure out. Uh, I'll tell you about that after this part, though. Fast forward a few more hours. We have a pretty happy Fedora server right now, and it's come down to the task of replacing that failed disk. This is actually what started the entire process.
2: Yeah, this was the whole point. This is the reason we started mucking around with the FreeNAS <laughs> system at all. I mean, formerly FreeNAS system. Of course. Yeah, yeah.
1: Now it's a fake NAS. That's what we're calling it. So what step are you about to take right now?
2: All right. We've already removed and replaced physically the failed disk with our new replacement disk, And we've applied the same partitioning structure that was on the previous disk. Now we actually just need to replace it in the pool. Right now it's configured in a mirror setup, so really we're just going to put it in and CFS gets to copy all the data from the one existing drive and we will have two back in parity.
1: All right, let's fire it off. This is the moment. Oh, I love watching all the disk light up. <laughs> That's my favorite part. All, it's like a Christmas tree. It's done. Well, at least it's returned us the command line.
2: Resilver in progress. Ah! Isn't that great? I just love the ZFS management commands. Zpool status just shows you always exactly what you want to know. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, you can see the state is currently unavailable, but it's, in, it's working. It tells you what it was. And then I guess we'll have to go in and we'll have to pull that one that's labeled as degraded once we have this finished.
2: Uh, no, this will do it. So that's um, oh, going to replace it, and then it should be health, healthfully
1: online as mm. soon as that replacement's finished. Well, let's toss to future us and uh, see what happens. Of course. This bad disc was the reason we even started. So where is it at now? Is it still resilvering? It yeah, takes forever. Yes, it is. Yeah, we're, it's like
2: we're getting there. Ninety eight percent done. So it'll be done hopefully today.
1: Yeah, th- that particular disc is a uh, Western Digital Red, so it's not like super fast. It's gonna and it's six terabytes, so it's gonna take a while to resilver. Um, there was two curveballs we hit that uh, I was not expecting. The uh, the first one is not too surprising, really, in retrospect. That is, we were installing to a USB device that sits on a USB header inside the case. This is something IX Systems does. So it's your OS is on a solid state. I think it was what sixteen gigabytes. Oh no, that was four.
2: That's a, that was one of the that was one of the difficulties of uh, our initial replacement. I didn't realize technique. we. Were, oh geez, yeah. So we tried to get
1: Fedora Server, which we actually got, totally worked just fine. We got it within the four gigs on this little solid state USB device. The problem was. A, we were, like, really low on space after we started installing a few packages, and B, it got, like, two megs a second Right performance. Ouch. It was really bad. So, like, ch- um, checking the key signatures on packages would just take forever. So we started just digging around the studio because we have some equipment around here. We thought, we must have an SSD somewhere. So we digged around here and actually could not find a spare SSD anywhere in the studio. I guess that's good. It means we're not wasting it. <laughs> yeah, them. we don't we have well, mm-hmm. utilization here. But I remembered we had an old Hackintosh that uh, towards the very end of its production line, we put a 10,000 RPM, 320 gigabyte drive in it. And then it only ran for like a couple of months and then we shut the system down. And we we converted off of it. So I went in, I tore that machine open, grabbed that disk out of the old Hackintosh, and we kind of MacGyvered it into the FreeNAS box. And so now we gave Fedora a 320 gigabyte, um, 10,000 RPM spinning disk to work with. But the system's really set up and, and the data's all across the RAID so or the array. So if the, if the OS drive were to pop at some point in the future, we'd have to reload it, but we wouldn't lose any data. So we had that problem took a little bit of MacGyvering to solve that because we needed some Mo- Molux power adapters to convert to SATA. And that wasn't so bad. The one that really threw me for a twist was we ran into essentially this issue. And I'm this is, again, I don't fully understand it. So if you do, please feel free to write in at linuxonplug.com slash contact and correct me. But uh, I couldn't use traditional NFS to share out the ZFS volumes it would essentially stop at a mount point. Like, if you had sub-volumes that were mounted, it would essentially stop at that mount point. And it took us a little while to kind of root around. And it even turns out that ZFS itself has some NFS provisions built in, and I was completely lost when it came to this aspect.
2: Yeah, so we ended up using the the ZFS stuff. You can just sort of set a property on your on your data set, and then you may have to remount it. I'm not I'm not clear on that exact particular, but after that's done it just shows up as an export list and you can mount it so we've got not everything's restored yet but I mean we just need a few more commands and we'll have all your shares back
1: yeah yeah so that was like <laughs> kind of funny because <laughs> the way it works is I would mount the NFS share and the directory structure would be there but then I would get to the bottom level where it was actually going into a sub volume and it would just be empty which is where all the shows would be or all the f- pictures would be so I'd have the directory structure but none of the data and it's like Such <laughs> what a happened tease lose it. But we got it going. We got it going and it seems to be working pretty well. And now we've got um, what we're going to do with this rig is just have it run some local services. We're in the process of finally replacing Dropbox and we're going to run some virtual machines on this, and all of the main applications will run inside a container. So the host operating system will be fairly unhinged from you know future upgrades and stuff. It'll be unimpinned or whatever. Whatever I'm trying to say. What am I trying to say? It'll be. We just want to worry about it. Yeah, you know, we're
2: not. Most of our stuff will be running in containers, and there's not
1: a bunch of apps and packages we're gonna have to worry about. It's gonna be like a pretty it's clean, not that much space. Yeah, that's, that's not impaired. Yeah, not in, whatever, not entangled. I don't know, not in long-term software commitments. <laughs> um, and then we're also going to set up WireGuard on that sucker, so the host can uh, get remote uh, WireGuard services in if they want to like remotely control the mixer or things like that. So that'll be on there.
2: It's already it's already pretty nice. Like um, just got NetData installed before the show, so I can watch as all
1: the data is shuffling around as it's resilvering, which is great. Mm-hmm. It's pretty. It's pretty nice to have. Um, it feels like what I. I, I, t- I was, I was, t- I'm such a nerd. God, I was. T- Laying in bed, talking to Hadia about the server, <laughs> can't even believe it. I just. Something tells me she's used to this. And uh, I'm, he's t- like, babe, you know, it's like I went out there and found out we had a sports car in the garage, and I, I thought it was like this little four cylinder commuter because we kind of forgot about the only like,
2: I mean, I think we you logged in for some reason and happened to see the little blinking red light on the Freenas console, right? Telling yeah. us like there might have been. Otherwise, we just didn't think. Sat about there and it.
1: ran. It just did. It did. It did its purpose really well. And I am kind of a believer in overbuilding your storage, so that's what I did there. But. Looking back at it, 64 gigs of RAM, two six-core Xeon processors, the thing's just begging to do more. And not that I couldn't do it with FreeBSD or FreeNAS. Absolutely, we could have. But I know how to do it with Linux. It's just
2: just faster, and we don't, I mean, we're not touching the system every day, so it's nice to have something that's easy, and we don't have to re-look up a bunch of man pages every time.
1: Yeah. So we'll we'll probably, well, eventually I imagine we'll spin up, uh, uh, whatever our sync solution is in a container. We'll, we'll spin up uh, a couple of other items that I use internally for like processing news and whatnot in containers. And I'll move some of the things that I have on workstations in the studio now onto that server. So that's what sort of the, and I'll just do that gradually over time. Um, probably with some of the more urgent stuff and then I'll, the, like the syncing thing, because this new Dropbox has got to go. This yeah, is just you know, the, oh, the final straw. Dropbox has just crossed the line with this Electron stuff. I will say it really did, um, it cemented
2: just why ZFS is a great choice. You know, we, we could just port operating systems
1: and hardly had to think about it. Mm-hmm.
2: There's not that many other ways that we could have done this and get all the other benefits.
1: It's a pretty, pretty dramatic switch. You know, we went from free BSD base with an old version of ZFS to Fedora 30 with the absolute most recent version on the most absolute recent Linux kernel. Some would call us crazy. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I've just really been enjoying Fedora 30. Uh, uh,
2: You know, it's... I would say, I mean, honestly, it did feel vindicated... It's hard to explain, but I feel like the whole process was surprisingly pleasant. Because we yeah. run into se- several other issues, all the stuff relating to Fedora and Fedora 30 server was great. And that cockpit was up. We've already done a mm-hmm. bunch through that, which was lovely as we were still trying to get everything set up and only had console access. Mm-hmm. It's
1: just been a dream. Really, I couldn't I couldn't really ask for any more. And um, I, it's funny because I've been running Fedora on the base and then like Ubuntu in the containers and then the VMs. That's just been my setup recently. It's just been working really well for me. I, you know, and other people, uh, different setups work, but
2: it reminded me of, uh, I think it was right when I first started listening to Jupiter Broadcasting. And it was before I'd ever used Fedora on the desktop. I had a, I think it was a Fedora 14, 15 uh, on the server. And it, it was one of my, my first and favorite Linux servers. So it's nice to come home.
1: Yeah. All right. Neil, I'm curious what you think. I know you work a lot in the Red Hat space with uh, ZFS. Are, are we crazy?
0: Well, first of all, I thought that was really cool what you just said. You were slightly crazy, but it was the good kind of crazy, so I was okay <laughs> with you. it.
1: Yeah, I told Wes, I said, Wes, you know, I think we're officially top-gearing this thing right now. Like, this is...
0: <laughs> I don't know, that other one was a pretty top-gear event too, but uh, with ZFS on Linux specifically, I think, I'm not completely certain on this, that sub the kernel can't see all the subvolumes, so when it tries to evaluate all the things that it exports through NFS, they won't work properly, so... That's why you need to use the ZFS built-in NFS share NFS feature um, on Linux, in FreeBSD, and other places. I think it's all more tightly integrated, so they can just do it normally.
1: And that makes sense because when we switched over to that, it did start it working. Just for worked, us. yeah. So now that's that's not like it's not like ZFS has like their own implementation of NFS; they're working with the kernel, right?
0: Uh, I. Can't answer that question confidently because it's been a long time since I've looked at that code.
1: That's just crazy to me. That ZFS is huge. Like, that's massive.
0: And the fact that ZFS works the same way everywhere is more of a testament to how much of an outsider file system it is in most operating systems. So it's very, it has to, it's developed very independently.
2: Right, comes with a bunch of extra stuff so that it doesn't have to rely on what may or may not be there.
0: Right. So like. It, a lot of these kinds of things have also been relevant in macOS, for example, because you can't really hit all, poke all the things the same way that you can in FreeBSD and whatnot.
1: Yeah, it gave me a confidence. It made me feel like, well, in the future, if Fedora doesn't work out and we want to go to Ubuntu LTS, I'm not going to have any problem getting my data. It's just going to connect and import just fine. Like It gave me a good sense of like my data is safe.
0: Yeah, and in respect to ZOL and all of these things, uh, Fedora and, of course, CentOS and RHEL, are first-class test targets for ZFS on Linux. So... If it doesn't work in Fedora, it is pretty much a blocker because that is a problem.
1: Yeah, it was dead easy to set up, too. It really couldn't have been easier.
0: Yeah, so like making sure it works in in CentOS and RHEL because, of course, enterprise people who want to use ZFS, that matters. But also using it in Fedora, that matters quite a fair bit, especially since Fedora is very close to upstream and the upstream kernels and stuff like that. So it's a very big, important point for that.
1: And to be clear, we went with Extended 4.0 on the root partition for the OS. So the Fedora install is running on Extended 4, and it is using a DKMS module to get ZFS working.
0: Yeah, well, I would have called you actually insane if you had put ZFS on a root file system. <laughs> yeah, we had some <laughs> but, limits, some limits.
2: <laughs> Don't think we didn't think about it. I mean, it was a listed option. We just didn't choose. <laughs> it.
0: Don't do it. Don't do it. Uh, I'm just going to say this right now. Like, I, I have done it enough times. Don't do it, unless you are running on CentOS where you can use a precompiled kernel module that can be uh, that works against the kernel API, it gets really unsafe very easily.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm just, I'm I'm thrilled myself because I just feel like I got a new tool to get work done. Um, not that it wasn't always there and I couldn't have done it, but now I'm actually going to use it. Yes, right. And we were running some stuff on like a personal workstation of yours or other random yes. machines. So it's nice to have a, a proper place yes. for it. Yes, exactly. So um, let me know if you think I'm crazy. linuxunplugcom slash contact. But before we get out of here, I want to do just a couple of picks uh, right off the top. I got a couple of command line applications I love this week. Speaking of command line love, speaking of command line love, you should check out the Ubuntu podcast. Do it. And send them your ideas for command line applications at Ubuntu podcast on the Twitters. Um, here's a couple guys you can, you know what? I, you are welcome to share these. I share these with the Ubuntu podcast if you want them because these are so good. Everybody's going to want these ones. RGA is our first one. It's, uh, like grep. But for PDFs, ebooks, office documents, zip files, tar.gz, etc., you can grab even docx files, SQLite files, uh, mkv files, mp4 files. Oh
2: yeah, all the things. So it's rip it's rip grep for
1: everything or anything, something
2: like that. Yeah. It's based off rip grep which if you haven't used you you really should. Ah, uh, Okay, rust, rip grep for yeah, everything. It's like okay. a rust implemented alternative, alternative grep that's just super fast. <laughs> They've wrapped say, this Wait, here. wait, wait. Did you say rust? Oh yeah,
1: of course. Of course it is. <laughs> of
2: course. Actually, I mean the um the burnt sushi the uh the author is is a fascinating human with some really interesting stuff particularly about the implementation of how the searching algorithms work in something like like grep so if you want to learn more it's not only a great implementation it's a good learning opportunity mm. as well so mm. this wraps that and lets it search and stuff like pdfs yeah or, you know SQLite. X, yeah, SQLite. All, of, all
1: the things that you've been missing that could be really nice to tell you the truth all right so maybe uh maybe searching things isn't your and thing since they're rust they're just each a little binary you have to download so uh, no worries about a complicated hmm. install. is there a way we could put that in a snap <laughs> yep. <laughs> all right. Now, I I love the fish shell. Talk about it all the time. I always encourage people to check it out. The thing I love about the fish shell is it does auto-completion for frequent commands. But it's not perfect because sometimes you have different variations on commands or sometimes you have just commands you only use very infrequently. Wouldn't it be nice if you could bookmark commands like you do URLs? Well, friends, that's where Marker comes in. It is... A nice little application for your terminal that lets you bookmark commands or entire command templates. And here's the best part. It lets you easily retrieve them with a real-time fuzzy language matcher. So you kind of just get in the ballpark of what you're looking for. It has a nice UI on the command line again. so, But it gives you a UI to select easily which command you wanted, and then it'll execute it for you. I could see
2: this being really nice too. Maybe you have a, a team of uh, sysadmins and you have a shared sort of toolkit for working with oh, applications. Oh, totally.
1: That's a great, that would be a great use. This is something I'm going to have to play with. Yeah. You just need Python, like a semi recent version of Python and bash or Z shell <laughs> and it'll work on Linux or uh, Mac OS. So there you go. And it's called marker. We'll have a link in the show notes for that too, which uh, I, I feel like that'd be, uh, It'd be pretty handy for somebody like me to have something like that on the server that we just set up. That's actually what I was, I was like. Oh, man, I could I could make you some defaults for yeah, maybe a
2: complicated little command or Something pipeline. I
1: do like once every six months. Yeah, exactly. You know, when the server when the server has to like have something done to it or whatnot. So anyways, check those out. Uh, when we say the show notes, of course, we mean in your podcast player or over at linuxunplug.com slash 306. Each episode's just slash right there. Easy to find, easy to get to. Mr. Payne, is there anything else we need to mention before we get out of here? No, I don't think so. All right. Okay. Easy peasy. All right. Cheesy, is there anything we need to cover before we leave? You got anything for us? Check out the new Telegram sticker pack. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. Yep. Or, and if you're not in the Telegram group, why not? a Broadcasting dot com slash Telegram. That's right. You should be. Should be. All right. Very good. Thank you, Mr. Bacon. Now I also want to thank all of you for listening. I appreciate every single one of you. You're the most important. No offense, Jeez, but they are. They are. I all of you, it's this show has done so well over the years, and we just we we really just are so thankful for every single one of you for listening. So thank you so much. Thank you for subscribing. Appreciate that. It's really great. We have a great community out there. Thank you so much for tuning in this week's episode of the Unplugged program. You are welcome, invited, and encouraged to join us live next Tuesday over at JBLive.tv. Get that time at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar. And of course, linuxunplug.com slash subscribe for the cleaned up, released version every Tuesday! I'm biased, and I'm probably supposed to say this, but we really have the best audience. It's incredible. It really is. And that's what's been so, like, this has been the season of events where we've been traveling a lot. In fact, we're about to travel again. And yeah, just really the best freaking audience ever, like... Friends for the, life. A number of incredible people I meet and just continue to meet. Yeah, yeah, it is wild. It's great. It's the best part of the job. So thank you, everybody. JB Titles, JB Titles. Thank you to that mumble room for making it, too. Really good to have all you guys here. Jeez, what are you talking about? What, what's the matter? No, I'm just, the matter? Saying,
0: I'm just saying after uh, we get off the show, I think I might hang around on the, uh, jump
1: on the old mums. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, day. yeah. Do I it. Oh. oh, I got you. So I got do you. A, do mm. a post. A little post uh, hang? Lup, lup lug. Mm, I like it. Mm. Oh, I like it. Yeah,
2: right. You're already suited up. You got your microphone on. Oh,
1: yeah, yeah. You know it. All right, jbtitles.com. Let's go grab our title. Otherwise,
2: we'll all take your voting rights away.
1: Mm. So, Poppy, how's the old feedback been on the uh, distro specific uh, snap pages? Yeah, other than um getting for incorrectly using the fedora, go. Okay? Oh. oh. Uh-oh.
0: I noticed I was trying not to be mean about it or anything. <laughs> I just said, hey, can you fix it, please?
1: You know what? I think it's a good idea. I like it. I like it, too. You know? But, geez, you know, you can't please the entire innit, If you did, you'd be a miracle worker.
0: Hey, I thought it was good. I didn't say anything awful about it. <laughs> <laughs>
1: oh, <Neil. laughs> that That sentence is uh, is pretty solid. I like that. Has my audio gone funny again? Every now and then. I think it's just packet loss. Weird.
0: I mean, from my side, it's been, everyone's been kind of cutting out a little bit, which has been odd because that doesn't normally
1: happen. Leonard. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> that poor guy. Dude, I'm not
0: even talking to you from my Linux machine right now because I'm <gasps> hiding in a conference room. Are
1: you Are you permitted to say that? I think, I think you have to, like, uh, get clearance or something.
0: <laughs> Hope he already knows this from the... Times that I've met him at various events, mainly Snap Sprints. But I I juggle more than one OS.
4: (laughs) I was going to say, I've never actually seen him run Linux.
0: Oh, no, no, no. At the, um, what was it? I corroborate what
4: Popey
5: just said.
0: (laughs) Oh, no. no. The the rally two years ago, I think, the one in New York. Uh I were you using the
1: Mac the whole time?
0: I brought my Linux laptop with me. Noah saw it, and so did a couple of other people. I have
1: witnesses now. Hold on, now we're not, we're, <laughs> not, we're not, we're not. Come on, we don't, we don't come know as shame. No we don't know as shame. We got to call for an end to this the tribalism. You know, like I feel like I should walk around and be like, my name's Chris. I'm a Linux user, and I also have an iPad. You know, like I have to just come. I have <laughs> well, to come clean. You'll be
2: holding your iPad, so they'll see. I yeah,
0: have to come absolutely. clean about
1: it. I, I don't know. No more. Down I have with a the Windows tribalism.
0: PC at home. I have a MacBook. I have. Uh, I have numerous Linux machines running all di- many different distros. Well,
1: here's where I think it has validity, though. Like, uh, I think if you work in free software and open source or in that space, like then that should be your primary stack. That should be your main stack because that's your area. But it would be ignorant not to ever try Windows or Mac because then you would have zero insights into how very popular, very commercial, right. very successful commercial operating systems. Yeah, you have to. You have to do that.